Hi, welcome to Product versus Crypto. Who's going to win the battle? Today, we're going to be talking to Kareem Rafa and Brian Hankey, both of Cash Gold, which is a coin and gold company based in Singapore. We're going to be talking to them about various things in the crypto industry, talking about stable coins versus not stable coins, ICOs, IEOs. Ponzi schemes, not Ponzi schemes, multi-level marketing, greater fools, all the good stuff that crypto has come to stand for in the modern world. But to get started, we want to talk a little bit about what these crypto companies are actually doing with their time. What are they making and why are they making it? How are they making it? And is there, in fact, an it at the end of any of this? Is anything actually getting made other than money? which I think is one of the most important questions. And to start off with this, I thought it would be worth talking a little bit, Kareem and Brian, please jump in, about where we stand right now in the business of crypto, what's actually happening out there, what's interesting, what's working, what's not working, starting with some of the scams and such that are out there. So uh, we'll throw that over to you guys. It's great to be on. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us on, Rob. Always a good time talking to you. Just to give you a bit of background, Cash, like you said, is a uh, an asset-backed token company. So what we do is we put gold on blockchain. But that being said, in the in the crypto space in general, there's so much going on at the moment. I mean, if you just go from a regulatory perspective, you have governance tokens, payment tokens, you have asset-backed tokens, and 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 many more, depending on which regulations you look at. And there's definitely development in in all of these spaces. Yeah, just to highlight that, you know, when you talk about sort of regulation from the point of view of somebody who's like, hey, I'm coming up with a really cool way to make regulations work um, for whatever token I'm creating, it presupposes that they understand what's in the mind of a regulator. And I think one thing that we've learned over the past few years with crypto is that that sort of cyber libertarian, I know more than everyone attitude can run headfirst into what regulators actually are going to say or do. Agreed. I mean, regulators have been known to work with market participants when it comes to deciding on new regulation, not because, well, they want to make the world a better place and an easier place to do business in, but mostly because they don't understand the tech that's being built on or the products that are being sold. And this is this works for, for tech, blockchain, as well as it did for financial products 20 plus years ago. For sure. And 20 plus years ago, and maybe more aptly, like 14 years ago, there was a gigantic correction in the market, which came about because there was so much froth being created by financial instruments that were mostly built on the back of real estate. And what was interesting is that real estate had gone from a very safe, conservative investment into a slice and dice, all the things you saw in the movie, The Big Short, right? It, all of a sudden, you were able to hyper leverage all sorts of financial instruments based on mixing different kinds of mortgages to take sort of shit mortgages and good mortgages and put them into one package and give them a AAA rating, the regulators approved, and it brought almost the entire world economy to its knees. So I think one of the biggest questions we all have to ask is, are we in a similar moment right now with crypto, particularly vis-a-vis stable coins? I bring this up because two days ago, basically at the G20, that was kind of the prevailing attitude that one could hear from a lot of the regulators and sort of the bigwigs in finance. Yeah, very true. I mean, regulation does tend to get corrected, so to speak, after after major crises happen. And like you said, in the the subprime mortgage crisis of 2007, 
deregulation was it 10 years prior is kind of what prompted up the uh, the mortgage-backed security craze and not even that much before that dot com was a new tech to bank on and even though regulation was very present that also got corrected very much i definitely agree with all that and i do think that these stable coins are going to turn out to be kind of a big short moment the question is when and how but i think we can get into that more later but they're definitely backed by a questionable basket of assets and there's not a lot of clarity around exactly what that basket has yeah that's really important to emphasize especially as we're going to be talking about gold and and fiat in this when you say you have a stable coin one of the claims you're making is actually the central claim you're making is less about your coin and more about what's behind your coin. That's the most important thing if you're a stablecoin. My stablecoin is pegged to the US dollar. Well, why are you saying that if you're a tether? And the answer is the US dollar is the most trusted financial instrument on the planet for various reasons, for better or worse, arguably because we have a really good army, but that's part of it. But also there are a lot of financial rules and regulations that come out of the US that are followed by the rest of the world. Again, for better or worse, there's definitely downsides to that. Uh, anybody who read the Pandora Papers will see that the US is actually the leading place for financial piracy, despite also being the leading place for financial regulation. It, it happens in the same place. So talking about what's behind all this stuff, is it US dollars? Is it, as is the case of Tether, we've now heard um, commercial paper out of China, whatever Paxos is backing their stuff with, you know, that is the claim you're making when you say you're a stablecoin. Inherent in the term itself is a promise that you can make good on your coin one-to-one -one with whatever those things are that are uh, sitting in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. I mean, the the, funda the fundamental belief is that you put a dollar in and you get a digital or crypto version of that exact dollar. Same way if you go to an ATM that allows you to deposit cash in it, you put your $50 inside and you expect your balance on your account to go up to $50 extra. The only reason why, you, why Tether or USDT is required in the first place is because the integration of traditional financial institution isn't yet at a stage where you can just enter and exit any shitcoin crypto trades back into USD. You have to go into something that's still on blockchain and enter USDT. Now, fundamentally, if the dollars are back, are, are there or not, or if it's just money market funds or just nothing at all, that's, that's where the question right. still remains. And of course, all of this really becomes important when there's a quote unquote run on the bank. Because if everybody says tomorrow, like, okay, I, I want Tether, I want you to give me that $1 for my one Tether. Tether then has to have all that in the bank. And if they don't, it all falls apart. It's uninsured, right? There's nothing to stop them from just exit scamming. If they are a fractionalized reserve system, it would seem like such a low blow to enter into a new financial system and then create something that's just as bad as what we just came from. <laughs> yeah, I want to stick on that for a second because I think that's really important. I, I came into crypto, uh, I've spoken about this before, but I came into it from very much a place of like egalitarian sort of social democratic theory that the idea that more people could participate in the financial system in a way that would redound to their benefit was a net good for the world. And that keeping this stuff with the high priests of finance 
was a way of keeping us out of being able to have our own money. Yeah. Democratization of finance, right? That's the yes, American dream right exactly. there. Exactly. That's what we all, I, I think a lot of us believe in that. And it's what brought me to, you know, any of this crypto stuff in the first place. The frustration is that a lot of these things that you're describing are in, you know, being intentionally obscurantist, which is to say, just like in all of these things, you make it so complicated, only the high priests can understand the, the text and interpret it for you. Well, that's old finance. So new finance theoretically should be, it's incredibly simple and anyone can understand it. You don't need priests. We're all Jesus in this analogy. Um, however, what we've created is a system that seems just like the old system, where a very limited number of people understand what's going on. They arbitrage their knowledge in order to get paid a lot. Those people are rich, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, DeFi is supposed to be a trustless system, but fundamentally when you're interacting with, you know, the AFK or the real, or the, you say the away from keyboard or the real world, you're going to have bridges from decentralized finance into real life finance. And that bridge you have to trust no matter what you do. Yeah. And I think that also speaks to the utopian nature of some of this. There's a, a lot of um, talk in the crypto community about the desired end point of all this existing today. Like, hey, I live in this world where all payment is frictionless and I can send my friend in the Maldives $1,000 and they get it for a really cheap fee and it's really great and then they can spend it all, again all on their, um, you know, on the blockchain without it ever having to do anything else. That sounds awesome, but um, it's not true. Like it's a utopia that we don't live in. So we live in this world and in this world, none of those things are accurate. I can't do those things. Everything costs lots of money. There are existing systems that do the same thing that I just described. And until we actually live there, we have to reckon with what's, what it's going to take to get from here to that utopia. And it's going to cost all sorts of things, including money, and it's going to require regulations. It's going to require governments to agree that this is a good way to do business. It's going to require those governments as well to accept that there's going to be a different sort of tax collection structure. And that is not a thing that's going to happen magically. Like that's work to get from here to there. And I don't think it gets priced in by most of the people in the, in the crypto community. Couldn't agree more. I think one thing we can say, and this isn't exclusive to, to Tether and, you know, all this, just to be clear, is alleged. We don't actually know for a fact. But what we do know is that very specific claims get made by people. In the case of Tether, there is on record a, a key member of the Tether team saying, we are backed $1 to one Tether that we print. Now, at a certain point, quietly and in the background, they changed that statement on their website without announcing it. And that's no longer the case. But it was the case long enough to give Tether a competitive advantage over some of you know the other competition in the marketplace. So the sort of fake it till you make it, the WeWork, the um, you know, in the traditional marketplace of it all mm -hmm. has actually redounded to Tether's benefit. It's worth it's a sixty-eight billion dollar market of tethers now, I think is the current number or something close to it. So there is some frustration as both a consumer and somebody who works in this space um, of why do you get to lie about these things and why is no one doing anything about it? Yeah. 
Well, I was just going to go back to when you were discussing whether or not these tokens are fractional reserve or not. And I think, well, it depends on what you mean by fractional reserve, but they're clearly fractional reserve in terms of the fact that they don't hold bank balances with dollars in them. They've, as Rob pointed out, they've they've changed the definition and now they've said all these other things are as good as cash. But uh, I think according to the report that Tether released back in March 2021, they were actually only back something like 4% with dollar demand deposit balances. The rest of it was all these other things, commercial paper, loans, and a whole laundry list of other items. Yeah, and and I want to hold on that as well for a second because I think it's important to state. So a lot of the loans are backed by crypto. There is, in 2007, if you talk to an analyst about the real estate market and all of the derivatives that had been created out of the real estate market, what he or she would have said to you is, look, things could go down, things could go up, but it's not all going to go down at the same time. I mean, there's no way the entire market will crash for real estate in Orange County. And it's like, no, that is exactly the thing that always happens. Like, you can't say that. You have to assume that it is possible that if you are all in on one particular aspect of the financial system, that particular aspect may crash. And if it does, and you are 100% exposed to it or 80% exposed to it, you will pay the price. Or, of course, in the case of the world that we actually live in, we all will pay the price because... As we know, um, privatize the gains, socialize the losses. The losses were socialized in 2008. We all paid with our taxes. We all paid with our economies falling apart. We paid with austerity, which destroyed lives, destroyed value, destroyed all sorts of things. So, you know, underpinning a conversation like this is the fear that when I look at Tether saying that a lot of the backing they have is in crypto backed loans not just crypto, but crypto-backed loans. If crypto crashes, those loans will crash with it. And if that happens and Tether really crashes, none of us know what that means, but it's nothing good. You know, there's no way that Tether is going to crash without impacting the world economy, basically, at this point, in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Very true. And when you compare Tether to a traditional financial instrument, it's basically a money market fund, right? Uh, which are which have been around for, for decades. Money market funds are pretty much filled with short-term loans and USD equivalents. I think that's the official definition. <laughs> Crypto-backed loans are not USD equivalents or short-term loans, and they're entirely based on very volatile assets. When the financial market collapsed or when any major event like this happens, if you talk to your risk analysts, they will tell you we only took into account two standard deviations of the norm in price, in price volatility. Right, everything over that in the model just completely breaks down because that will never happen. Right. right? It's of course what they're really saying is like our model's bad. <laughs> they just don't want to say it to you, like, listen, our model can't handle can't handle this thing, and therefore we actually should be telling you not to do this at all, which we don't want to do. So two standard deviations. <laughs> exactly. Right. All of this <laughs> is talking about sort of this new way of trying to do business. And again, I'm not here to say that people who are trying to create a new modality for economic, uh, you know, exchange uh, value storage are wrong to be doing so. I think that that is a net good thing for the world if it can be pulled off. But if it's going to be pulled off, people have to stop bullshitting themselves. They have to stop acting like the old system, 
right? They have to stop ignoring very reasonable um, questions about the new system that they've created. So all of this suggests that it's at least possible to come up with a way to say, here is a safe, easy method for making sure that if you want to play in this new space, and if this new space wants to grow, it can do so by um, utilizing aspects of the old economy. And I all of that is a way for me to sort of intro into what you guys are doing with gold, and then to talk a little bit about how gold works, how any non-fiat-based store of reserve works generally, and then talk a little bit about how it might and could and does potentially work with crypto. Talking about fiat as a way to be stable, generally, comes from the fact that fiat replaced another system that previously existed to keep the economy stable, which was gold. And here's how that worked. And here's why that worked. And here's why that stopped working. So maybe start there, and then that will lead us into, then we can go into a conversation about how gold can perhaps behave in a way that's safer and better than, you know, fiat or crypto-backed loans. Gold was always used as money because it had good properties to make good money. Um, it's portable. It's virtually impossible to destroy. It's rare. The supply can go up, but the supply goes up slowly and in, a, in an expected way. So that's why gold made good money and then was later used to back fiat money. Now, why that system fell apart, I think, is that's a long, complicated subject and different people would have different answers about why. But for the purposes of our discussion today, I think what's really important is that at some point, fiat money was disconnected from gold and therefore the supply of fiat money was no longer constrained by gold and how quickly we could dig more gold out of the ground. From what I understand, Bitcoin was always designed to be a kind of digital gold and they even borrow the terminology like mining. They talk about mining Bitcoin. Bitcoin from the white paper, the intention was really to kind of digitally model the behavior of gold to have a to have a scarce money and to have a money supply that that expands very slowly and predictably with a limited supply in total all right so it's interesting to hear you know this sort of parallel between uh gold and what satoshi wrote in the white paper for bitcoin and the sort of enforced scarcity argument of how to make any kind of currency or store of value work there are definitely counterarguments about that, and those counterarguments are what became the fiat system that we have today, basically. But what's interesting is that while that happened, gold remained probably the number one hedge against inflation. Is that fair to say of any uh, asset out there? Historically, yes. Currently, I think you get a lot of argument for that. Yeah, I, I don't mean that from the point of view of I'm not saying look at it on a graph. I'm saying sort of psychologically for a lot of people over the past 30 or 40 years, and especially for a lot of traders and people in the finance system, they've looked at gold as like a safe haven, a hedge, you know. Yeah, it was it was always gold in the Swiss franc for the longest time, at least when I was working on the floor. <laughs> yeah, 
Right. So and, and it was almost irrespective of how it was performing. Like you wouldn't be like, oh, we can't buy gold because it's at 400 instead of 800. It was more like, yeah, we should probably put some gold in our portfolio. Yeah. It's, or it's just going to be a crazy week. How about we up our reserves on gold and minimize the exposure on, you know, the world. Right. <laughs> and and I think that that's really important to point out because limiting exposure to ups and downs is in theory what anything that is claiming stability should be able to do. Gold was doing it for psychological reasons as much as any other, but psychology matters extraordinarily much in the, you know, when you're on a trading floor. It's, you know, for all the quants and all the desire for there to be like a rational economic system, it is to a point. And then at a certain point, it's like a lot of people talking to each other and herd mentality and feeling safe by doing the same thing as your, you know, your person across the way is doing. And so, so gold occupies that space. It still occupies that space today, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, very fair. So, you, you know, which leads us to a little bit of like one thing as I've come into, um, I'm, just to be clear, uh, to caveat all of this, I am not invested in any way in gold or crypto. I own neither. Um, I come at all of this as a person of relative modest sometimes and sometimes not as modest means who does all of his work with essentially fiat. And that's for a reason. I am trying to understand these things as I work with them and help market them and help promote them to the world. I'm trying to understand them with as cold and analytical uh, an eye as I possibly can keep so that I don't get caught up in any of the manias. And just briefly, there are a couple reasons for this. One is because I don't like it. I don't like manias. I think they're weird. And second, because it actually would do a disservice to my clients when I'm working with them to be another homer. I think a lot of what we see in this business is everyone starts drinking the Kool-Aid simultaneously. And like, then there are a lot of dead bodies on the ground. And I would rather be somebody being like, hey, yeah, that Kool-Aid looks tasty, but I'm not going to try any right now. I just want to see, is it really good? Is there poison in it? Maybe we are in Guyana right now. It is 1978. I'm concerned. Um, well, you know, it's only a matter of time until pension funds, your 401k, whatever else, possibly dip their toes into the the crypto product. Well, be that directly into crypto or through some form of ETF that their that their service provider gives them. But fundamentally, the filter is going to be just like dot com before any pension fund invested into any uh, tech blue chip. Is going to be this big correction we're all waiting for. <laughs> I think that that's probably already happening or has happened a lot more than most people recognize. I mean, going back to the financial crisis in 2008, you know, a lot of that had to do with too much interconnectedness and interdependency. And instead of de risking from that, I, I think. That's much worse right now. And I think the type of financial dominoes that could collapse from something like Tether would reach much further into the traditional financial system than most people think. Um, I just don't think most people really know what they're truly invested in when you consider all this interconnectedness in the system. Right. I mean, you're. I feel like a lot of people that do trade using te using Tether or or um, or the other stable coins out there are are still fundamentally relatively small. They're not maintaining the portfolio over a period of weeks and managing their exposure to all to all different cryptos and stocks globally. So what they're doing is they're they're trading. They're buying a certain say coin token. 
and then selling it and holding it in their account in in Tether and USDT or in any other stable coin until they find something else to invest it in. Just because putting it back out into fiat and back in is too cumbersome and often involves some sort of tax declaration, depending which country you're in. Right. And that thus becomes your own exposure to this. Correct. If you were if you were JP Morgan, for example, you wouldn't just sell all your positions and go back into USD. No, you'd manage your exposure to whichever currencies you're exposed to and find some sort of net normal. Not that JP would ever close all of their positions. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also, you made an interesting point, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, but I definitely want to research it, which is when Web 1.0 collapsed in 2000, and in my case, I had raised like $30 million for a, a really dumb idea. It was a short form video company where you could share the videos with your friends. And obviously that was never going to work. But Obviously, but uh, it was called Easy Flicks, um, also, which was a dumb name. F L I X. When was that ever going to be attached to a workable business? But um, when we did that, and when the market collapsed, I'm just interested to know, and I don't know from having experienced it the first time, how much pension funds already were in Web 1.0. I assume they were because there'd been a bunch of IPOs that'd been, you know, Pets.com and Netscape. GeoCities, all these huge exits had already happened. I have to assume that that some of the big pension funds and whatever had been in there in 2000, 2001. That was a pretty big correction of a very specific sector. So I wonder if that also might not be the best analogy for what may be coming if there is a correction in crypto. As much as I love that analogy, because it's a really good one, I wouldn't imagine the fund that any pension fund invests in to have over 20% exposure to any particular market or industry, right? So you've got tech, you've got infrastructure, you've got telco, whatever it is. Whereas in, in this particular example, when we're relating to stable coins and their effect on the crypto market, it's a lot more like the mortgage-backed security crisis, because that's the safe thing that everyone's holding on to when everything else goes tits up, right? So they're selling their their exposure to Dogecoin and and waiting it out in USDT because, well, that's what you wait stuff out in. Similarly, mortgage-backed securities, especially for pension funds and more risk-adverse investors, was the thing to go because, you know, the, the, housing, the housing market will never collapse. It's never going to happen, right? <laughs> it's super safe. Well, so should be a stablecoin. It's the safest thing out there. So when one thing collapses, it drags down a lot more than just the one industry. Yeah, and that puts... That puts, you know, the people who run some of these coins in the same category as, you know, what should have been in 2007. Like, look, who are the people who are actually putting these these derivative funds together? Well, they're trading desks at all the fancy places. So that can't be a problem, right? Right. But what are those derivatives derivatives of? Well, they're derivatives mostly of this guy called Angelo Mozillo's company, Countrywide. It's like, wait, who's Angelo Mozillo now? Because it sounds like what you just told me is that everything is predicated on this dude not being terrible. And it turned out that Angelo Mozillo was terrible. Not allegedly, actually. So <laughs> this whole thing, which seemed to be filtered through lots of like safe filters, was actually coming down to this guy and his honesty and his behavior. And he was mostly behaving to get rich. And in so doing, was exposing everybody to everything that he had done. Mm. So the question is, are the people who are currently running the stablecoin game Angelo Mozilla's? I, you know, I, I fear the answer. I don't have an answer personally. Certainly, yeah. you can. I guess the problem when you enter such an unregulated market early and become an early behemoth, you are basically the IBM of service operators. And no one ever got fired for buying IBM. 
Fundamentally, the same thing happens with, with Adam Newman's WeWork, right? SoftBank invests ridiculous amounts and then no one else has to do any due diligence because, well, if they're investing that much, everyone else's money should be fine too, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, that actually has a, a sort of interesting parallel in Hollywood, which is a, a business I've worked in as well in film and television, where if you're a studio executive and you have some $150 million movie that has to get made and you're working on the script, if you say to your bosses, I am hiring the most expensive screenwriter to rewrite this script, in fact, I'm going to do that three or four times, no one will ever give you shit about it because they're like, yeah, well, that's the most expensive person. Of course, it's who you want to have work on it. We have to protect our $150 million investment. And you as a studio executive are never going to get fired for hiring those writers, even though often those writers are bad or they write bad movies or they're going to make your movie materially worse. You're like, I covered my ass because I hired the million dollar writer. So yeah. yeah. And and there's a lot of that on the floors, on the trading floors as well. Um, so all of that's going to be really interesting to see. So, okay. So I think we've covered a little bit uh, about how gold has sort of functioned, what's going on with, um, you know, some of the stable coins out there. We've mostly talked about Tether, but there are several others um, that behave almost exactly the same as Tether. Tether got most of our rest just because, you know, USDT is so easy to say. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's a great, uh, it's a brilliant little acronym that they came up with. I give them props for that. Um, it's certainly I, every I time. Do have to, I have to interject, though, and just make a comment that I, I was personally shocked to see that basically USDC is is doing a similar thing. They're supposed to be fully licensed and fully regulated, and as far as I know, they are. The point that I'm trying to make here is that USDC is supposed to be the good guys. They're supposed to be fully licensed and regulated, but the composition of their backing, I mean, it looks similar to Tether. And extremely ironically, I think there was actually less transparency into it, or at least that was the case when a lot of this stuff was breaking. I've got to, I've got to wonder though the, the the financial incentive of you know backing yourself with crypto backed loans with uh, money market alternatives must be a lot better than just having a safe with bills in it with one dollar on. Well, them. it's a, I, it's <laughs> just another form of moral hazard, I think, because nobody is actually going to put them into a safe, actual physical paper bills. Although I think that's that's the concept that many crypto traders kind of envision or believe in when they hold these instruments, they would put them into bank accounts and then they would be they there would be another level of fractional reserve on top of that because that's what the banks do and the banks pay very low rates of interest. So the these stable coins are probably just getting greedy and they're trying to invest into things that that pay higher rates of return and Economics 101 says higher rates of return means higher risk. Yeah, that's exactly exactly right. Spot on. I, I completely, completely agree. And the thing about the banking system in the US is that, you know, banks are basically making a little skim off of the government letting them, basically, on a nightly basis. I mean, I'm oversimplifying things grossly, but that is part of, that's the lubricant of the system to make sure that money moves, to make sure that banks lend money, to make sure that they keep the economy moving. 
and they don't just sit on their reserves is essentially the government gives them money to do that every night. Every bank that's a major bank in this country is essentially getting that. And the implicit, sometimes explicit, but usually implicit exchange is that they will make sure that they are creating commercial paper as an example. So that if you're a car manufacturer and you got to buy $100 million worth of steel in September for a product that you won't sell until next year, that you can do that. And that keeps the entire system working. And it does go to the central bank working with the big banks. People can sometimes look at this from the outside and think it's unfair. How come banks can make money just by existing? And it's this contract, this sort of soft contract between them and the rest of us for us then to have jobs and to do all the things that we get to do because a bank has lent money to our bosses to buy something in advance of them being able to sell it. I'm, again, grossly oversimplifying. But that is kind of the thing that's happening out there. What the banks from various laws, which are often broken and result in things like the savings and loan scandal and other things, but generally, banks are therefore not needing to try to squeeze a 6% return out of that money because even though they're getting 0.02%, it's fine. They're getting it all the time. It's a way for them to predictably have profit and it makes this whole system work. These guys, as you said, Brian, just to sort of you know restate it, these guys are like, oh, we're like a central bank who should also get profit, but because no one is giving us profit every night, we're just going to go out there and try to create it for ourselves with the money that in the central banking world and in the big bank world would go for that steel, you know, that car company to be able to buy the steel. These guys are like, no, we're taking that money. And in order to make money, we're going to buy some crazy shit that is going to return 60%. And like you said, Brian, there's a very good chance that if it can return 60%, there's, sorry, not a very good chance, there's an 100% chance that that same thing can go to zero. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting, and I like the way you just outlined how the, the entire, I'd say, world economy trumping US works with money being, so to speak, the, the lubricant. What it does make me think of is what people do forget is that, quite simply put, fiat currency is a transfer of debt. You don't hold assets, you hold debt, which is given at first by the uh, by the central bank and then transferred to your local banks and then fundamentally transferred to you so that you can offset your hours with debt that your boss gives you and that you can buy food with that debt and that the grocery owner can buy more groceries with the debt you transferred to him and so on. What crypto tries to do and the inspiration from gold is very interesting there, uh, like, like Brian put it vis-a-vis -vis Bitcoin and mining, is to transfer assets and not debt. So that if you buy something with a token, it is a direct representation of a, something that has value in assets, similarly to gold. And that's why gold somewhat breaks down is because the freedom of central banks to just issue more gold doesn't happen quite as easily as it is to introduce new fiat, making inflation very hard right. to keep at. Which 2%. is the thing we're going through in the US right now. There's a big argument about where we are inflation wise. Yeah, that wouldn't be happening if you couldn't, you know, instantly mine more USD if it was still backed by by gold or, or silver for that short period. Yes, it is very easy to mine if you have the right job. Janet Yellen is a great, she's like the world's greatest <laughs> miner. Um, so, very successful. Okay. Yes, indeed. She has a huge pickaxe. So, okay, <laughs> understanding all of this and understanding that gold as a store of value has a relatively limited range, right? I mean, it doesn't really tend to go up more than 
what percent per year in a in a crazy volatile year? Five percent, ten percent? I think it can do twenty, but it's not going. That's a good point to bring up. It's not going to do something like you see in the cryptocurrency world where something just goes up 5,000% in three months. That's not going to happen. Or if it does happen, we're going to have bigger problems. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so we, we tend to flaunt this stat quite often on the, on the gold side, right? But apparently, historically, gold has gained 8% on average per year since 1970. Yeah, that's, that's right. And we chose 1970 because that's just after the unpegging of the uh, yep. of, of the uh, of the USD from the from the gold standard. Yep, Nixon took us off the gold standard. Yeah, so that's interesting. I think what I'm sort of also trying to get at, I'm less interested in gold's increasing value as a uh, investment. Although I understand that's very important to lots of people who are in gold, and that's great. I'm more interested in the fact that ultimately. People have decided that gold generally is kind of worth what it's worth with a variance of somewhere between 5 and 20% maybe in any given year, but they feel pretty good that they know how much gold there is and what it should be worth, which makes it a really interesting unit of stability. Let's call it that. I totally agree with that. Holding gold is not supposed to be about getting rich. It's about preserving the purchasing power that you already have. And as you said, you know, it fluctuates, it has down years, it has up years. But when you look at it over the long haul, typically what one ounce of gold will buy you is awfully similar to what it would buy you a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I think this is a good opportunity to start talking a little bit about what a gold token is, how gold works in this sense, and then get into some of the details about attestations and audits. So I think it's worth discussing how gold and tokens can work together. Now, a lot of this is experimental. Uh, obviously, I'm talking to two people who are in the midst of doing it, and they're working with a company that has a long and pretty storied history in gold markets. There are a lot of things that make that the case. In the case of gold, one of them is actually the ability to, to put it somewhere because it's a physical object. So that means a vault. And then there are all sorts of sort of tricks of the trade with gold, stuff that I didn't know that much about before I started, you know, doing some work with some people in that space. But, you know, how a gold bar in and of itself is fungible. Can you put it one place and take it out another place? All those sort of things. One of the things about a gold bar, though, is that it exists. And each gold bar has its own Guys, maybe you can jump in and help me. You know, when you when you talk about like gold bars and barcodes, what really does that gold bar, what does its existence mean? And how can you kind of measure that it is somewhere? Mm -hmm. It's refined and gets turned into an ingot by a specific refiner. And that refiner imprints a serial number on it, as well as um, a weight and a purity. Right. So if I like if I in inherit a bunch of gold from my grandma and I want to turn it into sort of a marketable gold, it would be melted down by a refiner and turned into an ingot. Is that correct? That's, yeah, uh, simplified, but yes. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep it simple for, for my friends out there who are idiots like me. So, okay. So now there's a serial number attached to a bar of gold that has a value that we understand. And that serial number is itself something that can be turned into as an example, a barcode, right? Mm -hmm. 
Fundamentally, yes. Um, I think Brian can definitely delve into the details as to how we hash and record each and every single aspect of a specific bar onto blockchain a bit better than I can. <laughs> I'll try to make a short summary. I mean, what we do is we take the bars, we analyze them, we test them, we make sure they're genuine. We log all the details about the bar, who the refiner is, what the weight is, what the purity is. We attach an RFID tag to it and put it in a tamper-proof bag, and then we photograph it and we log all of that information in near real time. And then we store a hash of the data in the blockchain. As people that are technically adept with blockchain know, you can't store a lot of data in a blockchain, but a hash is kind of just as good because if we were to manipulate or change the data, the hash would change. So. We're kind of making a proof that the data is legitimate and that we haven't changed it or modified it or manipulated it, if that makes sense. It does. And I think it's important to establish that it, since we are ultimately here talking a lot about the layers, right? Not just blockchain layers, but generally layers of trust and what all this is built on. I think we can set aside for the moment the idea of trustlessness because that just doesn't exist yet in any market that needs something like what a quote unquote stable coin, inevitably and inherently, there is the trust of whatever the backing is. Mm -hmm. If we come to the utopia where you don't need that and it can all be trustless, that sounds great. We're not there. It's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. It's very true. I mean, I guess a trustless system would be, you know, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is pretty much a trustless system because you, you interact with it as you will. But the second you want something for the Bitcoin in the real world, that's where trust's involved. You want to buy a car? You need to make sure that that car dealer that you paid in Bitcoin is going to give that car. In our case, although we were based on the Ethereum blockchain, the trust is as minimized as it can possibly be. And fundamentally is, do you trust the vault operator at the very end to actually have the bar that you have seen photographed, logged and everything else on blockchain if it's really there and still there? That's the only layer of trust we, 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 we maintained. And that's super important because now we've established two things. We've established that you theoretically are honest brokers and that gold generally is a thing that is relatively predictable in its behavior. Those are the two key pieces that bring us to the moment where we say, okay, well, what can you do with it? Now we've got this store of value that has been predictable for how long have people been storing gold? 3,000 years, 5,000 years? Probably forever. Yeah. I mean, as soon as People have a tendency to gravitate towards shiny things. Indeed. So they've been they've been storing shiny thing for a long time. There are a whole set of rules that have come up around the storage of that shiny thing. Brian, what you just described is the most modern version of those rules. But I promise you that in the 13th century, there was someone who could have given a version of that speech about how to trust that there was gold in their vault in wherever. And it would have had the same force for a 13th century merchant to make for, for that person to make decisions. This is a tried and tested way of storing value for human beings that is almost as old as we are as a social species. So I think that's an important thing to, to point out. Secondarily, you know, the variable value of gold is limited by various things. It's scarcity, the sort of complexity of trading it. There are enough things out there that keep gold from quintupling in price or being cut 500% on any given, uh, over any given timeline, generally. So all of this 
it is not a perfect world and anything can happen, mm -hmm. but these rules of thumb are about as good as you can get in the world of finance that exists today. Sure. It's a store of value in the form of an asset, not to rehash what I said earlier, but the notion of holding an asset at like a bar of gold is very different from holding a positive bank balance. And as such, you can interact with it or use it as leverage or collateral in a way that you could an asset. If it's a house, if it's your car, if you have a lease on your car, fundamentally, you're interacting with your financial instrument. It's based on the value of your car. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's very similar yep. in that sense. Okay. So, you know, the reason that I'm sort of asking that question is because I'm obviously leading us up to, would it be possible to put a um, digital asset that is pegged to or a digital uh, token that is pegged to that bar of gold would it be possible to create that in such a way that you could interact with this new digital crypto economy and obviously we know the answer is yes because there are people who are doing it there's you guys there's paxos tether has a gold backed token as well and there are a few others out there there's probably what 15 or 20 at the moment in in the market Mm -hmm. uh, what I wanted to do is to establish why it's interesting that people are doing this to say affirmatively that to me, a, a sort of born skeptic of everything, it feels like a less dangerous way to try to create a digital layer on top of a physical asset than others that I've been exposed to, heard of, or even worked on in the past. But within that, under that umbrella, there are good ways to do it, bad ways to do it, criminal ways to do it, ways that I think ultimately regulators agree with or will give their legal imprimatur to. And it's in that range that I think it's worth exploring how you guys are doing it and whether or not, you know, in my uh, sort of spread there where I think it lives and why I think it lives there. So maybe you guys could just talk a little bit about what your, you know, your company's background in gold was and why you guys decided this might be a thing worth doing. So I co-founded Cash together with Gregor Gregerson, and he's been in the precious metals industry for more than a decade. He founded one of the largest bullion dealers in Singapore, and then he also ended up building his own vault because the other commercial vaults were that were available didn't do things up to the standard that he wanted. And as part of that, they built their own vault control and asset tracking system. So I worked together with him to develop this and we approached it instead of looking at blockchains and tokens first, what we really needed to have is an asset tracking system and an asset tracking system that provides public transparency and one that's as difficult as possible to game. Uh, as Karim mentioned, the moment you start dealing with the physical world, there's got to be some trust somewhere. But we try to push that trust to the commercial vaults that are storing all kinds of valuables for all kinds of people besides us. And so from that perspective, we tried to build an asset tracking system that is publicly auditable using blockchain technology and that can be installed in, in any reputable vault because it's kind of a, a tough sell to go to a big commercial vault and say, hey, you need to install a new IT system. So our asset tracking system rides on top of their IT system and it secures all the data with the blockchain, with the hashes, as we discussed earlier, in near real time. So we called that system Gram Chain and we use that as the base layer to create cash gold. 
we used gold because that's the most obvious thing to start with, but actually the whole system is designed to track any kind of asset that you want. That's the perspective we approached it from. I think a lot of the other asset backed tokens on the market, they just kind of said, well, you know, we're going to make a token backed by gold or a token backed by silver. And they just put something together, but they didn't really start from the base layer of having an asset tracking system that's publicly verifiable. Which leads to a couple things, the two A's, attestations and audits. So if, again, I know the pushback that you know, you'd know you get from somebody in the hardcore kind of crypto community would be, yeah, but trustless, 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 you're talking about layers of trust. And it's true, you are, but we all are. All of this if Tether has created 68 billion Tether coins, which are necessitated for one to be able to actually use crypto in the real world, then we just have to accept that that's the way this is working right now, that a layer of trust is necessary for any of this. And what you've described, Brian, is you guys are doing two things. You're saying, one, we have our own space where we are dog fooding, right? We are showing our work. We're doing the thing we say we're doing with the gold that we actually control in the vaults that we control it in. And then secondarily, we are like the organic designation on food. When you see that designation, you assume that someone went and checked to make sure that the farm actually is following organic principles. So you guys, in a way, are doing both things. Is that fair to say? Well, kind of, but I don't want to apply too many labels as to what our technology is actually doing. And since you brought it up, organic farm it's kind of funny because our asset tracking system can be used to do a whole bunch of things even well beyond tokens tokens is just one application for it another application we've been discussing is green gold you know that's become a hot topic one thing that we could also do with it that could be related or unrelated to the tokens is we could apply a green gold certification to a certain bar and then we could timestamp that data and secure it on the blockchain make it viewable to the public and that would that certification that could come from a third party could be attached to the bar until which point it's withdrawn from the vault and it would follow that bar around through its lifetime in the system interesting so essentially this is one of those things where you found a system to create trust in a particular asset and then realize that there was nothing intrinsic to that asset that made the system work. It wasn't like this only works with gold. It was like, hey, we made the system and actually anything that you can sort of follow in a legitimate way where people are creating trust, this system would work for. Fundamentally, yeah. And, and it's it's what I've always praised uh, Brian and, and, and Gregor for doing is building a a token and asset tracking system from a vault operator's perspective. So they didn't come in mind to build a new token or a new coin that's backed by gold. They pretty much just standardized the operations that it takes to put gold into a vault and then maintain it on that vault and everything pretty much attached to that and then put those items on blockchain in order. So it's just a, a list of event-based entries. Interesting. Okay. So what... In theory, if I'm looking at this from the perspective of somebody who does want to get in and out of a crypto asset class, how would having a token like this around be useful or what, what would it do for me to help me? Fundamentally, we're not, we're not allowed to call ourselves a stable coin because we're not. We're an asset-backed token. 
Um, but if your definition of stablecoin were to be a, a token which is backed by an asset which you understand in price and in value, then our token, Cash Gold token or CGT, could be that asset for you. So let me ask you this, Brian. Why should a crypto trader uh, want to hold this token? Well, I think as we've been discussing, if it turns out that Tether or some of the other major stable coins fall apart, that's going to have incredibly profound impacts on the entire cryptocurrency market, the trading systems, the exchanges, and somebody's going to be left holding the bag. They're not going to be able to get out of those Tethers or those USDC or whatever other stable coin. If they can redeem them or sell them, they may not be for face value. And to be honest, in that type of environment, they may not be able to trade cash gold either or any of the other gold-backed tokens, but they would be able to redeem them for gold bars, and gold bars are something that are valuable even outside of the blockchain world. You can sell those in traditional finance, so it's not just a hedge against inflation and a hedge against crashes of your cryptocurrency, it's a hedge against failure of the entire system. Yeah, interesting. So I think that, you know, Everyone who's involved in this game right now needs to be thinking about, are they going to be the ones holding the literal and figurative bag? Could you explain a little bit about why you guys describe yourself the way you do, what your relationship to your regulators are, and then a little bit about what generally you know you feel like the relationships with regulators are going to be like going forward? Sure. Um, we're, we're very lucky. So we're based in Singapore and regulated by the Ministry of Law in Singapore. You can find our registration number on our website, cash.gold. And as such, we are regulated as a bullion dealer and a bullion dealer that, um, that issues asset-backed tokens. Um, as I said, we're fortunate to be in Singapore, which has different classifications and regulations for token types. At the moment, we have five payment tokens, governance tokens, security tokens, and asset-backed tokens. And I feel like I forgot one. Right. And as such, we are an asset-backed token. Okay. So that's interesting. And I don't know, you know, from a regulatory perspective, where Singapore sits in the hey, we're serious, badass regulators of it all. But probably, I'm guessing, based on what I know about Singapore, they're pretty high up on the list. They're pretty stringent, yeah. A very incredibly stringent um, country to, to live in and operate in, but a functional one, and one that's always made uh, regulation for the benefit of business and the protection of clients. <laughs> right. And I, I suppose it's worth asking, you know, because I'm sitting here in the United States, which has an extreme problem with sort of economic inequality at the moment. I don't know what Singapore's, you know, current kind of spread is across different classes, but do you guys have any insight on that? Um, unfortunately, no, no percentages or spread I can give, but it is one of the wealthiest uh, countries in um, Southeast Asia. Awesome. Uh, I, look forward to, I look forward to visiting you, Singapore, when I have a million dollars. Okay, so now to take a step back to what I was asking before about attestations and audits. I know there are a bunch of other people doing this, and there are some regulators who have specific rules around audits, but clearly there aren't much because the classic example here is Tether. We know that Tether's audits have not started yet, but are going to be starting any day now. Just give them one more day to get it growing. So what we get instead are attestations. And an audit is, we looked at your books, we looked at every single thing, you were not in the room when we did it, you gave us all your files, <clears throat> and we, a serious organization who have established our own trust, 
have then said that you have X, Y, or Z in whatever account we're looking at. The interesting thing about the audits vis-a-vis what we were talking about before is that when you're an auditor, if you screw up, sometimes you get the death penalty. And Arthur Anderson can attest to that, <laughs> right? They can't audit that, but they can attest to that. They they put their stamp of, of trustworthiness onto companies that did not deserve it. And they did it for bad reasons. And they were <laughs> ultimately shut down for it. So an audit is a very serious thing. I know there are a number of gold companies or gold slash crypto slash whatever we're calling it, not quite stable coins, asset backed coins out there. Do you know how many of them are actually doing full audits? What kind of attestations they're doing? What sort of is happening generally? The two major ones I think are PAX Gold and Tether Gold. And as far as I'm aware, both of them do attestation reports and they publish them monthly but by the time that they're actually published, they're far outdated. I'm not sure that I would say that an attestation report is necessarily that you're trusting them. My understanding is that it's kind of like the person signing the attestation report might be an auditor, but they're this is not an audit. They've basically just seen a statement, a credible looking statement that says the asset is there. So... They say, yeah, we, we saw as of this date, there's credible statements that the assets are there. So we sign off on this. Whereas an audit, as you described, it's kind of, they look at the statements, but they make sure the statements balance. They make sure that all the history leading up to it makes that statement credible. But in either case, they're both just a snapshot in time. So they are purportedly true as of the time that document is signed, but after that, there's no way of knowing where did those assets go. An audit gives you some protection that they are not perhaps encumbered in some other way, but I'm not sure that an attestation report really gives you a lot of security on whether or not they're they're otherwise encumbered. Yeah, so encumbrance meaning that there might be multiple um, different people pulling the same string, basically, which is to say if... There are four different financial instruments sitting on top of, as an example, one bar of gold, all of them essentially on the same bar of gold so that it's leveraged in multiple different ways. You would want to know that if you were using it as your own backing. Well, to make an example, Tether's gold backing is leveraged to provide some of the 4% of cash in the bank that's backing the Tether USD. I mean, nobody really knows. But it's important nonetheless. And all of this is also pointing out another thing, which is snapshots are necessarily moments in time. And the magic of the internet and the magic of our connected world is such that they feel a little bit antiquated as a way to do this. In other words, why should I only know once a month, once every three months, once a year that you're being honest, trustworthy, doing the things you say you're doing when there's the technology for me to know always? Yeah. When you call an Uber... And your friend says, where are you? And you just click a button and you send him an instant message with a live tracking of your location. That's kind of like what we should be able to do. Whereas this attestation report is like, I'm still home at 5.53 p.m. Yep, yep. And of course, we all know from, you know, most famously from Enron, although they weren't the only ones to do it, that with some combination of mark to market and... With knowing, if you know, hey, August 31st, I have to look like something. 
September 1st, who gives a shit? But August 31st, I look clean as can be. I get off the heroin. I go over to my parents' house. I wear my best clothes. I, if I get dope sick, I do it in the bathroom so they can't see me. And then September 1st, I'm right back on the needle. That is a extreme version of what we're talking about. It's like, you looked great on August 31st. We saw him. He looked wonderful. You're saying he's back in the hospital and on Narcan again? It's... It's a similar sort of vibe. It's like, as long as we know when these things are happening, and of course, with all these attestations, the companies that are doing them know that on a date certain, they have to look a certain way. Yeah, that's 100% right. What's happening between those, those dates, we don't know. It's even worse than that, because by the time, at least in the case of PAX Gold, which I've followed since they launched it, it's not uncommon for that report to actually be published 30 to 60 days later after it's dated. So not only is it just this snapshot, but it's a snapshot of a month ago. Interesting. So I guess I'll do two things. One, I I think it's important for people to sort of absorb this generally as like being problematic in the way we're doing things. It's also sort of antithetical to the vibe that we're supposed to be throwing off about all of this stuff. Like it's digital, you can see it, it's on like a website, I can go check out a hash and know exactly what's happening. That should be the baseline for all of this new way of doing business, but inevitably, of course, it's not. It's just like hopeful. It would be nice if things were that way, but actually you're gonna have to wait for our audit, wait for our attestation, Whatever. So having said all of that, that for some reason we're still stuck in this old paradigm of how to know that people are telling the truth about these digital assets that theoretically should be exposing their truth to us on an ongoing and constant basis. Is there anything you guys are trying to do with that from a product perspective with Cash Gold to like make it different? Without getting into all the technical details and just stating it very clearly, we want to make our product publicly auditable in real time by anybody that has a web browser and anybody that has basic and elementary school level math skills. That's enough to audit us. Now, can you have 100% assurance? No, because there's physical products. You have to trust somebody with them. But the products are all stored in, in vaults that are arm's length entities that store much more assets for other companies than us. And Basically, they would have to collude with us to commit fraud for our balances not to be accurate. And you can see them in real time, 24-7 on our website. You can validate them yourself. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do with gold and eventually to do with other assets. Creating this kind of transparency. To me, now where I'm going to step in, I'm going to say two things. One, I'm working with you guys on a project. So you know, that's that's an important um, piece of my own transparency. But also, too, the reason why I felt comfort working with your your team was because of all of this, because there's this sort of elemental transparency that's built into the idea of the product itself and that the product would not be able to exist without it, would have no reason to exist without it. That strikes me as the right sort of place to be starting from. And then it's one thing to say something in a white paper or in a deck that you're, you know, sending to VCs. So this is not a lot of the froth and kind of nonsense that's been created in this space has come from, and I've personally participated in this in a way that I found quite negative. You can listen to my podcast on Crypto Critics Corner if you'd like to hear more. 
What's interesting about it is that the ICO and later IEO, it's in its brief moment, Definitely. those mechanisms actually created a lot of this. They just were like such obvious money grabs. And the uh, the sort of moral hazard, I suppose, ultimately should have been like, hey, we created the product we said we were going to create with the money you gave us. But given that there was no ownership that transferred along with that money that came from the ICO or the IEO, there wasn't actually any force on you to do anything with the money other than not commit such obvious crimes that you'd end up in jail, basically. And and one of the issues that I think was raised by that was putting the um, money raise cart before the product horse in a significant way. And if your roadmap was, hey, it's going to take us two years to create this product, it wasn't two years to create a product into a market that's an existing market that we know wants that product. It was like, hey, it's going to take us a couple of years to make a product into a market that may or may not be interested in it, may not, may or may not need it, may or may not exist at all. We'll see. So there were so many layers between the money that you were giving in an ICO and the possibility of there being a product created that it, all the incentives were in the wrong place uh, <laughs> or they were in the right place. If you wanted to get rich in an ICO, they were great. But for anyone else getting involved, it was a nightmare and a disaster. And ICO's failure to create a product that exists outside of the existing Bitcoin or Ethereum ecosystem, I think is zero. I may be wrong about that, I understand there are plenty of products out there that are layers on top of layers on top of layers of the Bitcoin and Ethereum ecosystems. But it's something I, as a consumer, hey, there was an ICO, this thing happened, we made a product, you're using it right now. I don't think that exists in the world today. So, yeah, it's, it, I'm scratching my head trying to think of one right now. <laughs> but it's sort of amazing, <laughs> right? Hundreds and hundreds of these companies happened. Like, why am I not using any of their product? It, that was all 2017. It's 2021. I mean, come on. Is your dev team done yet? And so what's interesting in talking to you guys and what kind of helped make my mind up a little bit was like, so, hey, we raised some money and we made this product and now we're trying to figure out how to get people to use the product. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that problem. Heard of that before. Done that a thousand <laughs> times. Have worked with companies and every section of you know the economy on that exact problem, which is getting consumers to use your existing product in an existing market in a way that they will like and tell their friends about. It's called marketing and advertising, right? It's like a thing. It just doesn't feel so removed from um, you know the reality of what's underlying all of it. And believe me, marketing and advertising sell a lot of bullshit. And we've all been involved in it. But if you guys ultimately succeed or fail, it won't be because you didn't make a thing. You've made a thing and it's starting to happen and work and it exists. And all of, all the things you've described, it can be seen on your website. But, you know, you'll succeed or fail because consumers will decide they want to use your product or not. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, we hope to build the better product in a market which is in dire need of one. And now it's uh, just time to, like like in most blockchain or crypto-related sales, it's just that time to educate. Yes, for sure. So, you know, I think this podcast episode has been a little bit about that, about sort of educating somebody whether or not this is going to lead them to want to use this particular product, or it's going to lead them to think twice, as our engineer was saying to me before, because he or she may or may not be involved in several crypto investments, who is to say? But 
to get people to think a little bit about the decisions they're making outside of the context of, I want to buy something for a dollar and sell it for a hundred dollars in two days. None of us will question that that is an awesome thing to do. All of us who stop for a minute and think about it will say, how is it that all that value got, like what happened in that day? Like something incredible must have happened. Must have been, what, did 50,000 people buy your thing? And like at a great price point and a profit started getting generated and you're going to dominate this market. Is that why you went from a dollar to a hundred dollars? Because that better fucking be why. Because if it isn't, <laughs> you stole somebody's money. You just did. In my humble opinion. Well, it's a, it's a, it's pretty much a zero sum game, right? I mean, <laughs> so if someone's getting rich, someone's holding the bag. Indeed. Um, <laughs> yes, we all hold our own bags, sometimes physical, sometimes metaphorical, often economic. Uh, I think guys, is there anything else you want to cover? I think, uh, how are we feeling? I think that was, uh, I think that was pretty great. <laughs> awesome. Right on gents. Thank you. That was fun. Fantastic. Great time. Thank you, Rob. You're, you're very good at this. Catch you guys soon.